Hey friends, I'm Alameen Abdul-Mahmoud. I'm the host of the new podcast, Commotion. If you don't know about us yet, well, we are your daily deep dive into the biggest stories coming out of the world of pop culture, art, and entertainment. And luckily, I'm not going to be doing it alone, okay? I'll be joined by some brilliant culture writers and thoughtful super fans. We're going to have hilarious hot takes. We're going to have vibrant debates. Consider this your invitation to join the group chat. Get in here and join us. Commotion, available weekdays on CBC Listen. This is a CBC Podcast. Welcome to Ideas. I'm Nala Ayed. Thanks to Hollywood marketing and celebrity profiles, we know an awful lot about the acting profession. It's backstage workings. Now the approach and auditions are kind of like, this is my take. Instead of, let me go try to give them what they want. It's business. Scarlett Johansson alleging that Disney breached her contract, saying she was guaranteed an exclusive theatrical release and that her salary was based on the film's box office performance. But as for the meaning of acting, how it is that a performance connects and affects us, that stayed a little more mysterious. Cultural historian Isaac Butler believes that much of the power of modern acting comes from one source. I think that it qualifies as one of the big ideas of the 20th century because it changed the way we think about experiencing the world, just like abstract expressionism, or you think about improvisation and music. He's talking about the method. The method, the ideas of Konstantin Stanislavski, really had that kind of an impact. Before the method? We didn't think about the inner life of the actor. We didn't think about you have a creative spirit, that an actor was an independent artist, just as a writer was an artist. Those were new ideas, these things that we completely take for granted now. The method married creativity with insight. By introducing this idea that truly great acting is when an actor is experiencing the imagined reality of the role, which is not to say that they actually totally become the character, but there was this idea that you're going to meet that character and create this thing that is part you and part them. Butler says this kind of acting analyzed what a human being is and how a human being works. Its ideas changed a culture. They changed directing, and they changed writing, and they changed our idea of what authentic is and what good art is as they emerged through and re-emerged and re-emerged and developed throughout the 20th century. So in this episode, understanding the method and how, even today, it understands us. Here's Ideas producer Lisa Godfrey. BAFTAs, SAGs, CSAs. On an annual basis, we're told by critics and insiders what constitutes great acting. And the Oscar goes to Leonardo DiCaprio. The Oscars make it into a kind of a horse race. This is the first Oscar and sixth nomination for Leonardo DiCaprio. But thanks to screen technology, our relationship with acting seems to grow ever more intimate. It's an art form that we invite into our homes. We want to believe, to be absorbed into a performance. 
even, or maybe especially, in these distracted, entertainment-saturated times. Isaac Butler thinks that's because we're primed to see ourselves, to recognize our humanity in what actors do. His book, The Method, traces that back to turn-of-the-20th-century Russia, where a 19th-century hangover was afflicting Moscow theater. Russian acting was, to a certain extent, more realistic than a lot of other continents of European acting, but it was still about a received idea of how a role should be played. If you were playing a character, there was highly conventional ideas of how that character should be played that you were expected to match. There weren't really directors. Plays were mostly staged by stage managers over a course of at most nine rehearsals. You would learn your part on your own. So the productions did not have a coherent idea animating them. Wow. Yeah, I know. It's really wild. That seems crazy. Yeah, it's really wild. So, you know, you would have at most nine rehearsals. There's no discussion of inner meaning or anything like that. You would sort of stand center stage and face out at the audience and kind of dazzle them with your performance. And then the next person would do the same thing. And you would probably have a kind of role that you were especially good at and you wouldn't really play things that stretched you. It was just a completely different series of values and ideas of what good acting is from, from what we have today. Konstantin Stanislavski was a character actor there. He was frustrated with the artificial world of the Russian stage. He yearned passionately for something deeper, more complex and human and real. He wanted theater to be a seriously taken art with unified design and staging under the auspices of a director and designers who had a clear idea on the text performed by professionals who were giving their all to a collective vision of what the the plays were and what the theater's ongoing aesthetic goals were, and that would tell the truth. That was what he wanted. He met a man named Vladimir Nemirovich Donchenko. He was an award-winning playwright and teacher of acting, and they had very, very similar goals. And so over the course of a, an amazing 18-hour lunch meeting, it was a lunch meeting that stretched into coffee and then dinner and then a train ride and then a carriage ride and then an all-night bull session in Stanislavski's house and then breakfast the next day. So there's an 18-hour meeting because they were so on fire with each other's ideas. Ideas, they figured out that they had this joint vision of what theater could do and this real revolution they wanted to lead in art that would change the norms of everything from audience behavior to design to actor behavior to what a costume was, you know, and, and everything else. They co-founded the Moscow Art Theater to realize this vision. But the revolution was ever-changing, evolving out of dilemmas that Stanislavski, the actor, was experiencing firsthand. On tour in Europe in 1906, he has what Stanislavski scholars often refer to as the Stockman crisis. Uh, he is playing Stockman in Ibsen's Enemy of the People, and he's been playing this role for like 10 years at this point. And he's on stage doing it, and the inner fire is gone. You know, there's no inspiration. He just feels like, like a robot. And anyone who's ever acted will tell you this happens from time to time. It's a dry spell. You know, it happens. But what he realized was that unlike other artists 
who can be inspired whenever they want. Actors have to be inspired and have that inner fire on demand when it's time for them to walk out on stage. And so he begins to try to solve the problem of, well, how do you do that? And out of that grows what is called the system, which is uh, the precursor to the method in the United States. The system was Stanislavski's approach to living inside a character, experiencing emotions, but with control, deliberately. It's everything from breaking down a script into what he called bits and what we call beats, you know, story beats, and figuring out what your character wants at each individual moment to delving into or use of your past memories and your emotions and using them for the character to figuring out how to limit and control your attention. There's a lot of attention and concentration exercises, pantomimes, things like that. So he develops the system over for the rest of his life. He's, he's really developing the system. Another challenge was how to express that interior state outwardly, something Stanislavski realized a decade later when he was on stage in a Pushkin play. He realizes that he is experiencing the role, experiencing, or in Russian, the word is perjivanya, that he is experiencing the role, but he's not communicating that experience to the audience. It's remaining sort of in a kind of bubble around him. So he gains a renewed dedication to the voice and the body. Now, Stanislavski did not separate the interior and the exterior the way we do. He was a monist. He thought this was all one thing. So his focus just kind of shifts a little. In the space of a decade or so, there was a new kind of theater acting in Moscow. Less declaiming, more creative searching. In the early 1910s, uh, the actors are doing imagination exercises. They're doing improvisations. They're running around making animal noises. They're playing children's games. They're breaking down their script uh, with this sort of complicated self-designed system of hieroglyphics about all the different things that are going on in the character's interior state. They're doing sense memory exercises. I mean, it, it, lots of stuff that we now sort of take for granted as part of acting class. But But back then, it was really brand new. Some in the Russian theater scene found this all a little precious, but theatergoers were moved. We know from audience accounts, from reviews, from the press, particularly in Europe and the United States, you know, when they're seeing the Moscow Theater for the first time, that, you know, a lot of people said, I've never seen acting like this. I've never seen anything like this before in my life. This is the most specific, breathtakingly original, most real acting I have ever seen. You know, people say things like that really routinely to them uh, or will write them letters saying that stuff. People are just completely blown away by the level of psychological truth. And it should be said, because Stanislavski was a brilliant director, theatrical invention and showmanship that are being brought to these productions. It is not only that the acting is great. He is also a brilliant director and a very forward thinking director. And so it's the combination of those two things that people are really, really wowed by. Audiences outside Russia would come to be impressed, too. In the early 1920s, the Moscow Art Theater comes to the United States. The theater is kind of broke. They're in a lot of political trouble because of the Russian Revolution and the ensuing civil war. And it just becomes 
a really good idea for them to get out of Dodge. And so they tour Europe and they come to the United States for the first time. And they really arrive at the exact right time to have maximum impact in the United States because Broadway was beginning to become a place where people wanted to see serious theater. They wanted to see major works of Western drama. Eugene O'Neill is emerging as a playwright of significance at this period, just to give one example. And there was a hunger for European art because they knew that that you could get serious art from Europe. The Moscow Art Theater had been around long enough that it had a global reputation at that point. So people were very curious, you know, what is this theater that people are calling the first theater of the world? You know, someone had called it that at one point. So, you know, they strike Broadway like a lightning bolt. They're greeted with huge ovations. John Barrymore writes a letter to their producer, which is then published in the Times, where he's like, this is the greatest acting ensemble the world has ever seen. Theater goers would return to see the shows again. What they were seeing went beyond language. Many of the audience members did not know Russian, and if they didn't buy the scripts, they had no idea what the people were saying. It's not like there were super titles like there are today. And so they really had to rely on the sheer gifts and the specificity of the actors to kind of understand what was going on. And they were just blown away by it. One of the things they were really blown away by was this pre-system invention of Stanislavski's, the, the permanent ensemble, that the actors all were working together all the time. They were full-time employees of the theater. They were working together all the time, and they had a shared artistic vision of what theater was supposed to be. So whether you were playing a fisherman with one line or a czar with big speeches in every scene, you know, you were bringing an equal level of craft and dedication. That was something that people had really never seen before. They were really blown away by that and by the emotional and psychological power of the performances. American acting students were also totally electrified. And of course, they wanted to study with the experts. Richard Boleslavsky, who is a protege of Stanislavsky's, has to leave Russia due to his politics. Uh, Moscow becomes too hot to handle, and he eventually ends up in the United States. And after the tour, Richard Boleslavsky starts an acting school in New York called the American Laboratory Theater. And his students loved him. He was very charismatic. And so... uh, One time in class, he has the students come in and, you know, they were supposed to prepare a few lines of verse to perform for him. And they were all terrified of him. You know, he's the head of the school. And you have to imagine you're essentially a college freshman going and, you know, here's this big bear of a man and you're going to do 12 lines of Shakespeare for him or whatever. He got them all relaxed by having them close their eyes and imagine a, a body of water. And then once they were relaxed, he had each student go in turn. And then he said, you've been so generous with your art and your with me. Uh, I am going to do something for you. I will now become Juliet. Teenage lover Juliet of Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. And we have a letter from one of his students describing this moment where he's sitting there with his head down and his eyes closed for 10 minutes, they think, in the letter. And everyone in the room is thinking, What's going on? Is he going to do it? How is it going to happen? Is this ridiculous? Is this what? What is this? They're all wrapped with attention. And then he looks up and he just starts delivering the lines of Juliet. And he had become Juliet. This was a, you know, a, a heavy set, tall guy in his 30s, just through sheer inner discipline, 
transformed himself into Juliet for them. And apparently when he was done doing it, you know, everyone just was weeping and applauding and they had just fallen in love with him because of the the power of what he could do. It sounds magical. It is. I mean, that is the thing is that truly great acting is a kind of magic, right? Um, that's one of the things that's mysterious. There's an inner, innate mysteriousness to it, but in part that's because that moment where you go from when you fully become the character, that moment where you're really, you know, cooking with sauce, when you're really inspired, it, it, it is like a kind of magic trick to watch. Boleslavsky's American students became acting teachers themselves, retranslating the system along the way. From his start in a New York theater collective, one went on to found the best-known acting school in America, maybe the world, the Actors Studio. It has to do with what we do, how we behave on the stage, how we make whatever we're doing real. When we sleep, we not only have to lie there, we have to create sleep, which is a sensory reality. Lee Strasberg was very interested in true emotion, in the emotional reality of the character, and in finding that reality in yourself, and then bringing that self to the role. We commonly say your imagination creates it, but the imagination is nothing more than all these real things taking place unconsciously. When they don't happen, the imagination doesn't work, the inspiration doesn't work, and the actor is left only with the lines and with what Stanislavski calls the muscles of the tongue. He became famous and infamous for this exercise called the affective, that's with an A, affective memory exercise, which is where you recall a memory that has strong emotional ties through the sensory details of that memory to essentially trigger yourself into feeling a strong emotion. Then you use that emotion for the character. He was really fascinated by that idea. Um, he developed a number of exercises around it, and he was he was really interested in that lived kind of psychological and emotional reality. Strasberg's student, actor Dennis Hopper, demonstrated this for an audience late in his career. So to go into your subconscious, you have to trick yourself. I can tell you a story about, you know, uh, when I was a kid and my mother slapped me. And uh, there's not much emotion in that. You can't say, okay, my mother slapped me and now I'm going to have an emotional reaction. Nothing happens. But if you totally relax and find all your tension areas in your body, almost as if you're just you're going to relax and now almost to, to a point of sleep. And then you, you start with, uh, what was I wearing that day? Not what happened. If you think what happened, it's not going to happen. So you, <laughs> you know, you can have an emotion, you know, but, you know, because you go to something like, it's a sound actually, but you have to go through other things. You have to say, what was I wearing? Was, was, was it hot that day? Was it, and then you go to the sound and the sound always will be the thing that, that emotionally affects you. Okay, so then you control it, and you put it away, and then you go out on stage, and you're laughing and joking, and then they, then they tell you that your father has died, and they bring in the telegram, and that's when you release the emotion. You know? In mid-century America, 
Lee Strasberg's interpretation of the system took hold as the method, a hugely influential force, though criticized by another prominent teacher, his former classmate and collaborator. Stella Adler was much more interested in dramatic action and in the imagination. Instead of going deep within the self, she believed a great performance came from going deeply into the character and the story. She was like the real schism on some level is between emotion and the self and imagination. And in figuring out the lived reality of the character through research and, and script analysis, things like that. Like Strasberg, Adler was committed, fierce, hectoring. Don't yawn, darling. Don't yawn. If you're an actress, you will not get tired. If you're a pishika, you'll get tired. <laughs> because you'll say, well, what is she saying? I don't understand half of what she's saying because I don't know. I only know me. So anybody else doesn't interest you very much. Well, it so happens there is no you when you're an actor. You're only the character. She was as opinionated as her peer, and she knew him well. Lee Strasberg co-founded the group theater of which Stella was a member, and he was the main director of the group. And they just and she was the lead actor, actress of the group. And they did not get along. Just they just screamed at each other for years, basically. And eventually what happened was Stella was having so much trouble with it that she began to feel like she hated acting itself. Maybe acting wasn't for her. And eventually, through a series of strange circumstances, while in Paris, she met and studied with Stanislavski. And according to her, there's lots of debate about this, but according to her, Stanislavski said, no, 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 your company has gotten the system wrong. That's not how I use it. I don't emphasize emotion like that. It's really about action and about the problems the character is having and how they face those problems, you know, the, the obstacles in their way to it. It's, it's about a, a relationship to the text it's about the imagined reality of the character. And she brought that back to the United States in a meeting of the group theater uh, to which Lee was invited. There's some dispute as to whether he was there or not. She unveiled the results of her multi-week long time with Stanislavski. And an immediate schism resulted from that. The animus was personal, but it generated important questions for the craft. They hated each other until the day they died. They would badmouth each other in the press when the the first thing Stella Adler said when she learned that Lee Strasberg died was good riddance. It set us up this multi-decade long struggle about where does great acting come from and how do you train someone to be a great actor? And, you know, does it start from the lived experience of the actor or the imagined reality of the character? Konstantin Stanislavski was unavailable to answer those questions. He died in 1938, still experimenting, still refining his artful vision, even into old age. Meanwhile, his two American acolytes went on to influence generations Lee Strasberg became the preeminent acting teacher in the country over the course of his life. Paul Newman, Anne Bancroft, James Dean, Montgomery Clift, Marilyn Monroe. So Steve it McQueen, is true that more James people Fonda, studied with him. Dustin Hoffman, 
Al Pacino. You know, by the time you get to, I think it's the 1979 Oscars, nine of the 10 nominees are students of his. But you also have to remember that people were studying with multiple teachers, particularly once you get to like the 70s, the 60s and 70s, people are studying with Stella Adler and Lee Strasberg, but they're also studying with Samford Meisner, who's had incredible impact on the field of acting and was also a member of the group. They're studying with Uta Hagen, who um, is sort of a set the next generation of Stanislavski teachers after them. They're studying with Bobby Lewis, who is a member of the group. So I think of it as a collective achievement of these teachers that they pushed the ideas of Stanislavski to the fore, where they became the cornerstones of American acting. You're listening to Ideas and to an episode about The Method, How the 20th Century Learned to Act, a book by theater historian Isaac Butler. Ideas is a podcast and a broadcast heard on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on ABC Radio National, and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. Find us on the CBC Listen app and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nala Ayed. When faced with the complex moral questions the world tends to throw our way, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. My name is Waleed Ali. And I'm Scott Stevens. We're the hosts of The Minefield, an ABC Australia podcast. And each week we try to navigate the moral complexities of modern life in a way that's unexpected, unpredictable, intellectually serious, but more than a little fun. Along the way, we're joined by a range of philosophers and thinkers who promise to help you see the world and the challenges we face in a different light. You can listen to The Minefield wherever you get your podcasts. The quest for a more human and honest approach to acting traveled great distances. From Russia to America. From the system to the method. From theater to screen. Along the way, it went from a group discipline to something more individual and open to interpretation. Writer and director Isaac Butler sees its influence everywhere starting with a 1951 classic that broke new ground. He's in conversation with Ideas producer Lisa Godfrey. From its American start in New York theater, The Method entered Hollywood and the movies. One of the first was directed by Elia Kazan, Lee Strasberg's theater colleague, And while top billing went to the English star Vivian Lee, it was also cast with a lot of respected method actors, including Kim Hunter and Carl Malden, a streetcar named Desire. It won the Pulitzer Prize, the Critics' Award, the most revealing play ever written. New York, London, Paris, Brussels, Rome, all cheered it. It's an even greater motion picture. Based on the Tennessee Williams play, it's all about artifice and reality. Blanche Dubois prefers to see her desperate circumstances soften through a veil of illusions. He returned with a box of roses to beg my forgiveness. He implored my forgiveness. Some things are not forgivable. Deliberate cruelty is not forgivable. It is the one 
unforgivable thing in my opinion and the one thing of which I have never, never been guilty. So I said to him, thank you. And let there be no hard feelings. Her brother-in-law, Stan Lee, punctures and destroys her self-mythologies, full of threat and danger. Marlon Brando seems to channel Stanley in a performance that Isaac Butler says remains singular. I would say, if you're listening to this, you know, cue up that movie and watch it again if you haven't seen it recently. And you will see at minute 12 when Brando is finally seen in close-up. You must be Stanley. I'm Blanche. Oh, you're still sister. Yes. Oh, hi. Hey, where's the little woman? In the bathroom. Oh. Well, where are you from, Blanche? Uh, I live in Oriel. Oriel. Oriel, huh? Oh, yeah, that's right, Oriel. That's not my territory. Man, look, it goes fast in the hot weather. You want a shot? No, I, I rarely touch it. The first thing that will strike you is that he is almost painfully beautiful. But right after that recedes, what you'll notice is that he just seems more alive. He just seems more alive than everyone else on camera. He seems more alive than most people on camera in movies, period. There's something going on there. There is an inner spark that is lit. He is fully in the moment. He's very unconventional even today. It's a pretty weird performance in a lot of ways. Traveling wears me out. Well, take it easy. <laughs> Not those cats. <laughs> Endlessly inventive. He's doing endlessly inventive stuff. Hey, Stella! What'd you, what'd you do, fall asleep in there? And you can see why it was so influential and people would watch this movie again and again and imitate him. It becomes a major problem that like every young man who moves to New York to be an actor is sort of doing a Marlon Brando impression all the time. But it's because it's so startlingly original. And I maintain that it feels startlingly original now. Even the character is startling. A man challenged by women who lashes out in violence. Take a look at yourself here in a worn-out Mardi Gras outfit. Running for 50 cents of some rag with a crazy crown on. Now, what kind of a queen do you think you are? You know, I've been on to you from the start, and not once did you pull the wool over this boy's eyes. You come in here, and you sprinkle a place with powder, and you spray perfume, and you stick a paper lantern over the light bulb, and lo and behold, the place is turning to Egypt. And you are the queen of the Nile, sitting on your throne, swimming down my liquor. And you know what I say? Ha-ha! You hear me? Ha-ha-ha! He's a type that we recognize now. And someone Brando knew, too. Brando grew up unwanted, he said, in an alcoholic household. He saw his troubled, artistic mother suffer at his father's hands. And he suffered himself. Marlon Brando was sensitive, intelligent, spontaneous, but he disturbed his castmates in school, in plays, on sets, with behavior that was at best blindsiding and at worst sadistic. But was he a genius actor or was he shedding his demons? I think it can be either. I mean, Brando was a very intuitive actor uh, and mercurial and mischievous. 
and rebellious. And I think you actually see that in his performances because one of the reasons why he's giving such unconventional performances is that he, you know, he'd rather be caught dead than doing what you're supposed to do. You know, Brando had some maybe innate gifts as an actor to such a degree that he had trouble respecting acting or taking acting seriously. He wanted to be a drummer. Other times he thought about quitting acting altogether to get sort of more involved in the political movements of the of the 60s. You know, he deeply cared about civil rights, for example. But acting is the thing that he was best at. And he did come from that difficult background. This is all a long way of dodging your question, maybe, because I feel very conflicted about the question that you've asked. And I think that's a conflict that runs throughout the book. In asking students to mine their deepest conflicts and personal traumas, the method obviously courted trouble. But there were, of course, self-destructive actors before there was a method. There were, uh, you know, there were actors who did horrible things to their castmates and co-stars before there was a method. The method did not create any of those things. That said, it's hard to look at the lives of a bunch of actors of the 20th century. Marlon Brando, James Dean, you know, Kim Stanley, Montgomery Clift just to give a few, just to give a handful of examples that are in the book and and wonder, like, is there a connection between a way of thinking about acting that requires you to go so deep in and not always knowing what to do with what you find there? And, you know, one thing that a lot of actors, including Brando did was go to analysis (laughs) and to go to therapy, to try to deal with that sort of stuff, uh, with mixed results. I think some people dealt with it really well and some people didn't. Isaac Butler points out that not all of Lee Strasberg's troubled, talented students went off the rails. I'm somebody now, Harry. Everybody likes me. Soon, millions of people will see me and they'll all like me. The Oscar-winning actress Ellen Burstyn, for instance, of Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore and Requiem for a Dream. Remember? I'm very moved by Ellen Burstyn's memoir. Uh, Ellen Burstyn wrote a really beautiful memoir, uh, and she's very much a spiritual and and psychological searcher. And you can feel that throughout her book. Um, she's had she had a very difficult life with a lot of different traumas in it, and yet she's also among the most devoted people to Lee Strasberg's teachings and to the method. She's the she's the head of the actor studio now and, and has been off and on many times since Lee's death. And, you know, she found a real way to navigate that stuff. So I don't think it's inevitable that if you've had a hard life and you start studying Stanislavski, you're going to start abusing people or become an alcoholic or kill yourself or, or have nervous breakdowns. I, I don't think that's inevitable. But I do think that actors need to take care of themselves So if you had a happy childhood and you were emotionally grounded, could you also be an exceptional method actor? Was anyone of that of that real method acting period student of Lee Strasberg? Did anyone fit that bill? Does anyone fit that bill? (laughs) Right. I mean, that's a good question. I mean, there were certainly people who. You know, we're, you know, Sidney Poitier comes to mind as someone who was a, a, a brilliant method actor and also clearly psychologically grounded and in control of himself, sometimes too in control of himself, maybe. Uh, but, you know, uh, it was that control that allowed him to navigate the sort of Scylla and Charybdis of racial representation in the 60s. 
you know, he's, he's someone I think about, but you know, the 20th century is also a century of, of a number of different traumas, major and minor. And, uh, growing up in it was no easy thing for a lot of people. It is striking to me how often a father abandoning them figures in the biography of a method actor or having a too controlling and authoritarian father. Anyway, back to your question. I, there's no name that's coming to mind right now, but it, it is. There were so many people studying studying it at any one point that certainly there's there's a number of people who I think that it wasn't about their past traumas in there, but it did get that reputation over the course of the 20th century, you know. And, and one of the reasons why it got that reputation, I think, is that the method emerges into the public consciousness, so it it becomes a sort of industry wide thing, and then the public starts reading a lot about it and learning a lot about it and learning a lot of mistaken things about it because of James Dean and Marilyn Monroe. Uh, James Dean and Marilyn Monroe really make the method famous, and of course, they both destroyed themselves and they had very traumatic pasts, and so that does become a kind of template in the public's understanding of what the method is. By the time the 1970s rolled around, the method could be found everywhere in Hollywood and was ideal for the American movies of its time. You talking to me? You talking to me? You talking to me? Then who the hell else are you talking to? Talking to me? Well, I'm the only one here. There's a bunch of different factors feeding into that. One of them is that by the late 1960s and early 1970s, everyone has studied with some combination of Strasberg, Adler, Meisner, Lewis, Hagen. The writers have, the directors have, and the actors have. A lot of those major directors of that time period, Sidney Lumet, uh, Peter Bogdanovich, Sidney Pollack, John Frankenheimer, Martin Ritt, uh, you know, they're all coming out of this tradition. So part of it is just that. It's just reached a saturation point. Another thing that's happened is the studio system, the Hollywood studios are really out of touch with what the public wants. They don't understand the public. They don't know what's going on. They're run by very old men at that point. And um, movies like Bonnie and Clyde and The Graduate come along and they sort of then easy rider and they bust the whole thing open. Those movies are all made by method people. Mike Nichols studied with Lee Strasberg. Dustin Hoffman was a method actor and Bancroft was a member of the studio. I mean, once you start going down the cast list, you're just like, oh, it's everywhere. Then the other thing is what America is going through at that time. I've been a soldier since I was 19. And I still haven't learned how to wait for it. I wanted a mission for my sins. They gave me one. Nobody had ever gone on a mission like it before. And when it was over, I'd never want another one. The Vietnam War becoming an obviously unwinnable <laughs> quagmire. Eventually you have Watergate. You have all the revelations of what the, the American government is doing, even to its citizens but supposedly in the name of protecting them. You know, um, you have the revelations of the church committee where you, f- you know, you find out every day they're unearthing new terrible things the FBI and the CIA are doing. You have war crimes in Vietnam and, and this quagmire that we can't win. You have a, a, a president in Nixon who is paranoid and delusional and is lying to the American people all the time. And so Hollywood starts making these fascinating, brilliant, 
thorny, very fun too, uh, movies about the darkness on the other side of the American dream. And the method has always been interested in what's underneath the surface. The method is what gave us to some extent subtext. And so if we're going to dig in, if we're going to mine the American character, we're going to dig as deep as possible. And we're going to try to find what's underneath the, that's, that's the method value right there. That's what the method held as one of its central ideas. It becomes a perfect way to, you know, realize the content of these movies in terms of the acting style and acting process. The quest for something authentic, something true and intimate, that's been the legacy of method acting in all its forms. From the 1970s onwards, actors have absorbed and remixed the method's ideas. So is it everywhere or nowhere now? I think we live in an era of remarkable diversity of acting approaches and acting results. Um, And that we should be grateful that we live in an era where that's true, where you have everything from the very internalized naturalism of someone like Jeremy Strong on succession. You're, you know, I, I, I hate to say this because I love you, but you're kind of evil. To the like often avant-garde, almost abstract expressionist or something style of Nicolas Cage. (laughs) And, And then you also have the sort of playfulness of someone like Olivia Coleman. How lovely, aren't they stunning? Oh, let's just leave them there. Lovely. Come in. That that we have all of these things is a real embarrassment of riches. So it can sometimes be very difficult, but that poses a new challenge for talking about acting, I think, because we no longer have like a central dogmatic value of what good acting is. An example I give of an actor who I think is truly brilliant is Francis McDormand. It's strange that you encourage people to invest their whole life savings, go into debt, just to buy a house they can't afford. Fern, that's a rather limited look at what we do. Is it limited, George? I mean, we're not all in a position to just chuck everything and hit the road. Oh, you think that's what I've done? George, I chucked everything to hit the road. Is that what I did? Frances McDormand is not a method actor in the capital M method sense. She didn't study with Lee Strasberg, but she is part of the Stanislavski inheritance. You know, she studied an adaptation of Stanislavski while at Yale. So that's part of it. But also, you know, she embodies those values that you really should try to change yourself when becoming the character, that you should be playing the character as a specific person in all their little micro details. You know, she tries to demonstrate a diversity of work as opposed to doing the same thing over and over and over again. She prides herself clearly on versatility. You know, those are a lot of the values of um, the kind of post-Stanislavski American movement in acting. She also seems to have uh, a healthy attitude and boundaries. You quote her as saying, you need to have a deep emotional well, but also the ability to put a lid back on it when you need to. Yes. And that's something that a lot of actors, if you're going to dig into yourself and you're not going to rely just on externalities, that's something that actors really do need. And um, 
you know, in their defense, uh, the American acting teachers who are popularizing Stanislavski's ideas would say the same thing. Whether they were really working hard to help people do that or not is a totally different question. Like every workplace, the creative one has come under scrutiny lately. Emotionally baiting fellow actors or screaming at young acting students in the name of psychological truth, it's no longer acceptable. At the same time, particular psychological things do go on. Isaac Butler notices it when he directs theater. A very frequent occurrence with actors, no matter what character they're playing, is something that I've often heard referred to as character bleed, which is, you know, you're spending a lot of time thinking about this character and thinking about how to realize them. You're spending a lot of time in their shoes in rehearsal, if it's theater, you know, on set in your makeup trailer, you know, whatever. Um, And so a weird thing starts to happen where... we become the the membrane between us and the character becomes kind of semi-porous and bits of the character start coming in. And, you know, anyone who remembers the, the leads in the high school musical hooking up and becoming boyfriend and girlfriend, you know, has actually seen this happen. It ha- it's very, very common. Or you'll see two actors whose characters dislike each other suddenly start feuding for no reason. It happens almost inevitably, no matter what your process is, and is hard to guard against. It doesn't happen every time, but it happens a lot. Today, actors are often playing roles rooted in their own off-screen identity. Race, gender, sexuality, family history. As always, the stories that Hollywood tells have high stakes. They're full of conflict. They can involve trauma. An actor has to be open, yet careful. I just think that we lose something if we get too guarded as artists. I mean, I I consider myself an artist as well. You know, you have to be able to open yourself up to the world and to be vulnerable and to allow experiences in and to allow your own experience out. We lose something if we become too guarded about all of that stuff. If we're, we're so closed off that the spontaneous moment can't happen. And so it's always going to be a balance between that kind of openness and things like professionalism, things like workplace safety, treating your coworkers well. Some people can navigate that really easily. Uh, They just have an inherent sensibility of it. Some of us have to work at it. But I think it's something that every artist confronts at some point. You know, even if you're a writer working by yourself, if you're writing about something really difficult emotionally, it can kind of screw you up for the rest of the day. You know, how do you not bring whatever you've dug up over the course of writing into your married life? All of us have to deal with that. It is not just actors, but actors can't practice their art without a bunch of other people around. So it is particularly heightened with them. Life meets art. It's all as complex as the method itself, that approach that gave our culture the charismatic, paradoxical figure from the 20th century, the real actor. The performer who looks and behaves just like people we know, maybe even ourselves. An embodiment of human flaws, human victories, human truth. All the other arts transform reality into a different medium. Sound, music, words on a page, you see, painting, and so on and so forth. They capture life but by transforming it onto, not mechanical, but to a totally different medium. In the theater, and that includes the movies too, from that point of view, because to me, that, those are the theater mediums. The living presence of the actor means that you are creating art 
with the same means that you create life. Could that partly explain why we're so drawn now in our culture, for better and for worse, to stories that mix truth with lies and reality with imagination? Early in his career, Kazan makes a movie where he's using essentially non-actors playing themselves. And, and, and you know, obviously in the Italian neorealist movement, there's lots of times where there's sort of non-actors playing roles. And then gives eventually we we give birth to reality television and you know uh, President Trump and, and and things like that. But I I think that another thing that's going on right now is it it's a reaction a bit to the postmodern era and to the crumbling of the liberal consensus that you know we in the West I don't like using that term the West but you know what I mean uh, uh you know the the kind of the 20th century consensus because it was really a bunch of different interlocking consensus that fell apart, particularly beginning with the rise of Reagan and Thatcher. You know, so it used to be that we had a kind of monolithic culture and a counterculture, right? But once that monolith breaks up, what you have is a bunch of equally valid ways of looking at the world. And it's very difficult to know how to negotiate that. And it's very difficult to know I really think we do struggle to know what is real and what is true because we don't have a monolithic understanding of the world or a broad liberal consensus the way you had during the Cold War to kind of tell us those things. And then we could rebel against them if we want, but at least there's someone providing an answer. And now it's like, well, here's 35 different answers. Good luck. I think that the method had a role to play in that story that I've just said, but I think it could also have a role to play in guiding us out of it by insisting that there is actually something called truth and that there is something called reality. And yes, it's shaped by subjectivity and yes, it's shaped by our life experience, but there is truth or multiple truths, but they still have to be true. You know, that, that we can get away from type, away from convention, away from cliche and towards trying to see and embody and perform reality. I think that maybe it can help us out of this puzzle a little bit, even as it's helped us get into this uh, problem in the first place. You write in the book that we currently crave a comforting lie about who we are. What did you mean by that? As our art gets sort of clearer, as it has to compete for our attention as we're watching things on a streaming service and, you know, we want to grab you and hold on to you so you don't reach for your phone and start texting someone. Um, Things have to get a lot clearer in order to be able to do that. But what that means is that the vision of the human condition that we are watching, that, that idea of what a person is that we are rewarding with our attention is one that is very simple. It's often filled with conventionalized behavior, and it's one in which human beings as characters can be easily understood. But I don't think individual human beings can actually be easily understood. I think we're somewhat mysterious from others, and we're somewhat mysterious from ourselves. And that one of the most difficult things in life, at least for me, is living with uncertainty. And part of what art can do, particularly narrative art, is create this incredibly powerful, but very safe space in which we can live with uncertainty for a bit. We can be uncertain. We cannot know. 
And that's what's so brilliant and so difficult about Streetcar Named Desire, for example, is that Tennessee Williams refused to take sides among those characters. He just showed them to you and you had to live with that. I worry that we are losing that part of what art can do, that we are de-emphasizing that, that we are less interested in that. Um, and I'm not saying all art has to do that. There's lots of art that's very certain of itself and very clear. That's really wonderful. I'm not denigrating anything, but I want to protect a space within our culture for art that helps people live with uncertainty, that helps people live with not being clear with people being mysterious. Um, and, and with the unexpected, I, I think we need that. I think it's important to being a human being, to be able to have that. One of the 20th century's greatest actors, Marlon Brando, frequently captured that ambiguity and complexity in his acting roles. He was critically acclaimed, won numerous awards, but he was ambivalent about acting, though he had a theory about it that he shared with talk show host Dick Cavett on TV in 1973. Uh, I'll, I'll maybe say something. I think that... Uh we couldn't survive a second if we weren't able to act. That, uh, that acting is a, is a survival mechanism and uh, it's a social ungent and uh, it's a, a lubricant. And we act to save our lives actually every day. Uh, people lie constantly every day by not saying something that they think or saying something that they don't think, or showing something that they don't feel, or... Yeah, but that's not acting. That is acting. That is No, it isn't. Yes, it is. Brando also believed that he, and all actors really, were nothing without us, that we tell the story, project our truth onto artifice, and lend reality to the lie. Those who see acting as an art form, a deliberate and skilled choice, would disagree. But he claimed, I had nothing to do with it. The audience does the work. They are doing the acting. You've been listening to The Real Actor, an episode featuring cultural historian Isaac Butler. He is the author of The Method, How the 20th Century Learned to Act. You can find more information on our website, cbc.ca slash ideas. This episode was produced by Lisa Godfrey. web producer for ideas is Lisa Ayuso. Danielle Duval is technical producer. Ideas senior producer is Nikola Lukšić. Executive producer is Greg Kelly. And I'm Nala Ayed. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.